So uh, there was this uh, uh, this turtle from the Midwest, and uh, this turtle decided that he was tired of the harsh winters, and so he devised a plan that he was going to head south to Florida for the winter. And so uh, he got with a couple of his buddies. There were a couple of geese that he'd been hanging out with. And he goes, hey, guys, I got a $100 bill for you if you can figure out a way um, to help me get um, to, to Florida. And so they kind of began uh, brainstorming, and uh, they talked about it. And eventually the turtle came with a plan. He goes, okay, I got it, guys. He goes, I- I've, I've got this rope. And he goes, what I want you to do is I want you to take one of the ends of the rope, and I want you to put it in your bill. And then I want you to take the other end of the rope, and I want you to put it in your bill. And then what you're going to do is you're going to begin to fly. When you begin to fly, it's going to lift the rope up, and I'm going to grab the rope with my, my really tight fisted jaws. And he goes, and I'm going to hold on for dear life, and you're going to fly me to Florida. And so sure enough, the turtle devised the plan. They get the rope and they get everything situated and they begin, uh, the, the geese begin to, to raise up the rope in the air and, and the turtle latches on with his tight-fisted jaws and sure enough, they're up, up and away. Reminds you of the movie Up. And so here it is, they're floating away. And uh, as they go, they just continue hour by hour. Eventually, uh, they get to a place where they're coming over the top of a park. And uh, from below the park, there's a guy in, in the park that he goes, oh my goodness, who in the world came up with such an idea? As he looked in amazement. And all of a sudden, because the turtle could not resist the urge, he goes, it was my idea. And there's some of you that you'll get it later this afternoon. <laughs> and it's okay to go ahead and turn to your buddy and go, hey, I, don't, I don't understand. That's okay. But listen, sometimes it is us opening our mouth and it's our pride that brings about a great fall. So today as we dive into Romans chapter 3, as we continue this series called Romans, Revealing the Righteousness of God, there is a huge dilemma of pride going on within the Jewish culture. And this uh, dilemma of pride brings about um, an incredible picture that Paul is going to address before them. And so if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 3, we're going to dive in in just a few moments. While you're turning there, uh, maybe you're new to church. You're like, I don't even know where Romans is. It's in the New Testament. It's the sixth book of the New Testament. And so if you come to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, that's the Gospels. And then after that, you've got the early church, which is an Acts. And the first book after that, Romans. Then you're going to turn, and you, there's a big uh, big numeral. So there's big no, numeral one and numeral two. That's the chapters. Then when you get to chapter three, the big numeral, then we're going to start in the little small numeral, which will be like verse one. So Romans three, verse one. As you're turning there, I want to welcome everyone that's joining us on our Edgewood campus, as well as those that are joining us online uh, as we kind of dive in today. Now, real quickly, just go ahead and set the stage. Um, because he is dealing with um, some prideful people, Paul is going to ask a handful of questions that resonate with his Jewish audience. Now, the Jewish audience that he's writing to are a very prideful people. Um, They open their mouth continually, and they oftentimes make it about themselves, just like the turtle did. Now, the reason I say that is because Paul is going to make his point by asking a handful of hypothetical questions in Romans chapter 3. And I'm just going to go ahead and give you fair warning. If you doze off for 30 seconds, you will be lost the rest of the message. And the reason why is because as he, as he begins to really bring about these questions to them, hypothetically, he is addressing the very core of a theological problem that, that this Jewish audience in Rome has. And the core problem reveals around who they think they are. Now, real quickly, just so you understand, the Jew believed that because they literally came from the tribe of, uh, of any Jewish culture, any of the 12 tribes, that they were saved by God. It didn't matter what they did. 
God saw them as his people. And if they had the law, which was the Ten Commandments given to God, uh, to Moses on Sinai, they had the law and they had circumcision, then what else could, could come between them and God? And that was what they believed. And so Paul is addressing that very issue with them. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What he's saying is, he goes, you believe that you're set apart because you're a Jew. And he goes, and that's great. You have an advantage. And he tells them that they do have an advantage. You have the law. You have circumcision. Uh, In Romans chapter 9, you'll see some other things. Look at verse 4 and 5. You can flip over there or I'll put it for you up on the screen. But he says this about them, other advantages that the, the Jews had. He says, they are Israelites and to them belong adoption. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, to them belong patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. He goes, guys, you're Jews. And he goes, and you do. You have the law, the Ten Commandments. You have circumcision. You have all these things. You have the prophets, the patriarchs, the promises, the covenants. You even have Christ. And he goes, is that enough? That's the question. And the question he asks it next is, in verse 3, what if some, meaning Jews, were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Meaning, if a Jew sins or they fall short of the glory of God, will God judge a Jew? Now think about that real, quick, real quickly. If a Jew sins one time, they commit adultery, or they lie, or they covet in their heart, or they steal... In their unfaithfulness, are they condemned? Or because God gave them all these promises and covenants and circumcision, do they get a free pass? So I want you to answer that real quickly in your mind. Real simply, does the Jew get a free pass in their sin because they're Jews? Paul says, look at verse 4, by no means, by no means. By no means, if you're unfaithful, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. He goes, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And he quotes Psalm 51. And when he quotes Psalm 51, he's quoting David, uh, the very one who um, had an incident with this lady named Bathsheba. He quotes David, look at this in Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4. David, this is the king of Israel, saying, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David says, I know I've sinned and I know that I've missed it. And so God, you are faithful and you are blameless in your judgment. What he's basically saying is, is even though I'm unfaithful, it doesn't change who God is. Now, you're probably following along a little bit. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm not tracking. Okay, that's why I said, if you don't track, you will be lost. He goes on in verse five and he says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then he says, I speak in a human way. 
Here's Here's what the Jews believed. The Jews believed that even though they had the law and they had circumcision and they had the prophets and they had the covenants and they had even uh, the Messiah, though most of them rejected, here's what the Jew believed. They believed that they could sin as much as they wanted and, and as they sinned, they would promote the righteousness of God. So think about it like this. They sin as much as they want And when they sin, they say something like, well, isn't God glorified in my sin? It shows his righteousness. In some ways, what they're doing is they're giving a contrasting view. Even though I'm a sinner, you clearly see that. Don't you see how God is holy? That's why he quotes David. Let me explain who David was. David was the king of Israel. Before that, he was a shepherd. But when he was king of Israel, there was a day where all the kings were off at war and David decided to stay home. And while he was on his balcony, David looked down and he saw a woman. And guess what? He looked at this woman and he saw her. He coveted her. He took her. And then he hid his shame. Sounds a lot like Achan if you've been reading along with us. The, the whole idea is that David takes this woman, Bathsheba, he brings her to his palace after he covets her, takes her, lays down with her, impregnates her. And then get this, after um, she becomes uh, pregnant, he's got a dilemma on his hand and he goes, you know what, I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to hide it. And so he uh, summons for Uriah the Hittite, uh, which is her husband, to come from war. He tries to, to get him caught in a drunken stupor, uh, eventually tries to get him to go in and lay with his wife so he could put it all on Uriah. Uriah will not do that because he is faithful to the king and to all of his Israelite buddies. Eventually, David realizes my plan's not going to work. It's been thwarted by Uriah and his integrity. And so he sends Uriah to the front part of the battlefield and Uriah is killed. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's a guy named Nathan who comes along and Nathan says uh, this to, to uh, David. He goes, David, can I, can I just tell you a story? And David goes, absolutely, you can tell me a story. He goes, well, let me tell you a story about two men. There's one man who, um, he is a rich and a wealthy man. A matter of fact, he has herds and flocks that um, are numerous. He has so many sheep on the hill that it's unbelievable. He goes, but there's another man, he's a poor man. And this poor man, he only has one sheep. And it's, a one, it's one sheep that he keeps in his house. It's like a pet to him. He goes, matter of fact, it is as a daughter to him, is what Nathan says. This one sheep is a prized possession for this, this poor man. And he takes it wherever he goes. He goes, but let's just suppose that the rich man who has all this bounty of sheep has a, a, a man traveling through the country as a neighbor and he decides that he's going to feed him. Instead of going to his field and grabbing one of the numerous amounts of sheep he has, he goes and he steals the sheep from the one poor man and he has it killed to feed his neighbor. David, hearing that, he's outraged. And he goes, as sure as the Lord lives, this man should die. Matter of fact, this man should take what was, was taken from him and he should be paid by, back by the wealthy man four times. Y'all remember a guy named Zacchaeus who ripped off from the poor? Do you remember what he said? Uh, Lord, whatever I've taken, I will give back four times. That's why Paul quotes David because David in this story realizes, because Nathan says, you realize your anger towards this rich man and what he did to the poor man? He goes, that's you. You know Bathsheba? 
She was a prized sheep to Uriah, but you didn't care. You took, you coveted, you enjoyed, and then you covered it all up. And he goes, and you are unfaithful. Now the question is, is in David's unfaithfulness, does that make God more faithful because David did that? And that's why Paul quotes that. And he goes, listen, it's in your judgment that you're justified. It is that you are blameless in all your ways and all your judgment. And here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to help the, Ro- the Roman and the Jew realize you cannot claim that in your sinfulness, that makes God more righteous. Let me explain it to you in a better way, okay? Y'all leaning in with me, because here we go. I told you it could be confusing. Y'all remember um, a, a guy named Judas Iscariot? Okay, Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 disciples. Judas Iscariot is the guy who is known for betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He, he does that. He hands over Jesus uh, by um, a, a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested. You know, he's taken before Pontius Pilate. He's accused, though he's innocent. Uh, they hang him on the cross. As a result of all that transpires, Judas realizes that in his sinfulness and his rebelliousness, that it wasn't worth it. He takes his own life. Now, let me ask you a question. If Judas were to stand before God, and, and God were to say, Judas, why should I let you into heaven? What would Judas say? Do you think Judas would be warranted in his response to say, you know what, God, because I was a sinner and because I handed over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, I, in my evil, kept prophecy. Matter of fact, prophecy said that I was going to do that. And because I did that, guess what? I made you more true. God, because of my sin and my rebellion, your holiness was revealed. What if Judas then went on? He goes, hey, think about this, God. Like The whole world was destined towards hell, but because I betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, guess what? Jesus actually was killed. And because he was killed, the whole world is saved because I sinned. So Judas' thought process is because I sinned, the whole world comes to salvation. Now the question is, is, is that... Is that a justified thought? Is is Judas Iscariot's sinful rebellion, is that okay because it glorifies God and makes him righteous? And the answer should be by no means. But listen, that was the dilemma that Paul was talking about. And so when he says in verse five, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. And he goes, I speak in a human way. He goes, if our unrighteousness, if Lazarus could plead the case that because of his sin, God was glorified, then he goes, that's crazy. And that's why he, in some ways, as he's writing an inspired word from God, he steps out of himself and he just helps you to see his human thought. He goes, this may be the most preposterous and crazy lunatic way of thinking I've ever heard that I could go on and sin as much as I want because every time I sin, it promotes the righteousness of God. Now that's a license for sin, isn't it? I can do whatever I want. And in verse six, you see Paul's response. He goes, by no means. No, it cannot be this way. For then how could God judge the world? 
I mean, if, if, if Lazarus could go and sin and betray Jesus so that Jesus saves the world and then make his case, then he goes, well, how, good, how could God condemn anybody? He goes, that would be preposterous thinking. And he goes, and it is indeed a crazy thought. And then he makes the case as he's building that he goes, the, the Gentile wouldn't even think this. You remember the Gentile in, in Romans chapter one, verse 18 through 32? And he goes, the moralist in Romans chapter two, verses one through five, he goes, the moralist wouldn't even think this. And he goes, how does the Jew think this? He goes, this is a ridiculous thought. And then he asks another hypothetical question in verse seven. He says this, but if through my life, God's truth abounds to his glory, or through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Basically, he goes, if I lie... And in my idolatry, God is, is made supreme. Then he goes, how am I going to ever be condemned? He's asking a hypothetical question. And that question is, is, is it okay for me to sin as much as I want and then say, but in my sin, isn't God good? And he goes, that's a, a terrible way of thinking. A better way of thinking is one that you would see in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Y'all might remember a guy named Joseph. Joseph was sold uh, into slavery at the hands of his brothers. Um, as he was in slavery, uh, eventually he finds himself uh, second in command in Egypt. And then his brothers come to him um, in Egypt, say, uh, seeking refuge in the midst of a famine. And you might remember that his brothers recognized who he was and they thought that he was going to have um, them, that Joseph was gonna have them killed or, or removed. And then Joseph said something in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says, what you meant for evil, God used for good. That's a better way to think about it. Yes, though Judas meant evil, it doesn't show the righteousness of God. It just shows the goodness of God. That what Judas meant for evil, God used for good. So can God use evil in the world? Yes. But does your evil promote his righteousness, so therefore do all the evil you want. If that's the case, then we should not have any, um, any remorse for even what's happening right now in the Middle East. We should have no anger. We should have no, um, in, in some ways, a righteous anger or indignancy towards the Taliban in the Middle East. Because if what they're doing is promoting the righteousness of God, then we would say, hey, let evil abound. But that's an irrational thought. And that's what Paul is trying to help the Romans see. This is an irrational thought. Matter of fact, it is not an orthodox thought. It is not one that the Jews would have naturally had. Let's go back all the way to the days of Moses. Moses was about to die. And in Deuteronomy chapter 31, I'll put it for you up on the screen so you can see it. Um, there's a conversation between God the Father and Moses as Moses is about to die and Joshua is going to take over for the Jewish people. And leadership. In verse 14, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and they presented themselves at the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent and the pillar of the cloud and the pillar of the cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. Then look what happens, verse 16. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down, which means to die with your fathers. Then this people, meaning Israel, the Jews, will rise and they will whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Basically, he's saying, after Joshua takes over, there's going to be a period of faithfulness. But after that, they are going to go after other gods, little g, and they are going to pursue them. Now look at God's response. 
Verse 17, then my anger, God says, will what? Be kindled against them in that day and I will what? Forsake them. I'll hide my face from them and they will be devoured and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is what? Not among us. So the Jew believed that when they sinned against God, he would what? Remove himself. That's not what was being taught in Jewish circles in Rome, which is not an orthodox thought. So the unorthodox thought was, I'll sin as much as I want to the glory of God because it reveals his righteousness. Isn't God good? And how could he judge me? I'm a Jew. You see the thought? But that doesn't even go with what he would even say to the very beginning. He goes, Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 31. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. The Orthodox Jew would have known that because of my sin, because of my rebellion, it separates me from a holy God. But in this day and age, they go, my sin and rebellion glorifies God. Irrational, crazy thought. Can we have that thought that prevails in our culture? You ever had the thought that, hey, because God loves me, um, I can do whatever I want and he'll forgive me anyway? Ever had that? I have. I can remember seasons in my life knowing that God loved me, sent his son Jesus for me, and then go, I'm going to go do this sin thing because I know God loved me and I know that he'll forgive me after I do it anyway. And isn't that because God's good and it promotes the righteousness of God? But isn't that irrational thinking? That's why Paul says in Romans chapter six, hey, do we continue to sin that grace would increase? And he says, by no means. That's why Paul asks another hypothetical question. Look at verse eight. He goes, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. He's going, isn't, it would be one thing if we just went out and we'd, why don't we just do all the evil in the world? Because we go, God is just. Now you think, well, how many times could he ask the same type of question? He does it several times here. You see all these hypotheticals? It's the idea that William Newell writes even about uh, just the, the church. He says this, thousands of so-called church members not only have never been brought under real conviction of sin and guilt and personal danger, but they rise in anger like the Jews of Paul's days when one preaches their danger directly to them. Friends, let me say it to you this way. I've had my eye on the Middle East for many years. But what's happening in the Middle East right now is, is pure evil. And it's, it's oppressing men and women who, even though they don't believe like you and I do, although some do, and the, the early church is spreading, or the, uh, the church there in uh, Afghanistan is spreading, um, there are many people that are being oppressed and, and they're running for their lives. And, and what I would say it to you this way is that you and I would never make the case that evil abounds over there so that God is right, made righteous. We would say that uh, evil abounds and that even though evil abounds and God is righteous, he'll use evil to bring about his glory and good somehow, some way, even though it's difficult to watch. Now, what I would say is this, is that I think we live in a culture that as we look with eyes on from a very very large distance. I think we, 
we, we struggle to empathize with people. And I think we even struggle to, to even understand or have a conviction in our heart that we should be praying for them um, and that we should desire for them in the midst of evil to come to know a God who loves them. But even more than that, the, the church that is running for their lives and starving day by day because resources are gone, I ask the question, what if that happened to us? Like, would you see the church or, or would you see people that said that they were a part of the church then, then, then scattered? Like how many people would actually stand up and say, I'm a part of the, the church and that, that just as many believers have done over there are hunted down and, and being killed simply because of their belief in Jesus Christ, would, would, you, would you hold up to that? And I think that's really what we see when, when William Newell just says that. He goes, many of us in the church, we, we've missed it. And so it's just something to think about. But as Paul addresses these questions with the people of Israel, he goes, listen, your, your righteousness uh, or God's righteousness is not nullified because of your unfaithfulness. He goes, you, you need to know that. Then he he goes on then in verse nine, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And he says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So he's made the case. He goes, even though the Jew has all of these things, he goes, are you better off than anyone else? And he goes, no, by no means. So just as you're not free to do whatever you want, so the righteousness of God is promoted, he goes, you need to know that you are not righteous, that you are sinful. And then he begins there to unpack it. And in verse 10, he says, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. And in verse 11, he says, no one understands and no one seeks for God. What he's saying is, he goes, you need to understand the wickedness of men. The wickedness of men is from head to toe. And he goes, you need to know that, that we are totally depraved. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. In essence, what he's saying, he goes, man is morally depraved. And he goes, and God has to draw us to himself. And as he draws us to himself, we can, in some ways, begin to realize our foolishness. But then he unpacks it. And he goes, basically, I'm going to give you an x-ray of, of anyone without Christ. And he says this in verse 12. He goes, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the person who says, well, there's not that much bad about me. I'm a pretty good person. What does Paul say? No, that doesn't exist. Paul goes, that the moralist, it doesn't exist. He goes, you're like a Gentile. He goes, and then he just quotes Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36, Isaiah 59. And this is what he says. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He goes, that's who you are. 
He goes, you would say, well, your unrighteousness promotes the righteousness of God. But he goes, what I want you to see is that your unrighteousness condemns you. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. You are condemned because not one is righteous, not even one. He goes, your mouth is a grave. Your feet are going to take you places that are going to bring about death. Your hands are going to cause you to do things that are going to bring bloodshed on you. He goes, there is nothing good about you. And when we can understand that, and when the Jew can come to the place of understanding, then it helps us realize that there is a need for a God who is good and is righteous. Which is why then Paul concludes this thought with these words, verse 19 and following. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. He goes, the only way foolishness is stopped is through the law. And if you understand what the law is for. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Who's held accountable to God? Just the Gentile? No, the whole world. Jew, Gentile, barbaric, slave, free, male, female. Everybody is held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Underline that last phrase, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Because there is a question that oftentimes comes on, and I'll close with this thought, is what is the purpose of the law? The law was for the Jew, the Ten Commandments. What is its purpose? And I think there's a lot of confusion about that even amongst the church today. Like, why does the law exist? I think we could easily think, well, if I put the Ten Commandments in the, in the courthouse, then anybody who does these things won't be in the courthouse. Or if we put it in our living room and we tell our kids, hey, just keep these things. Hey, we'll be good before God. Hey, just obey your parents. And hey, don't covet and don't kill. And, and, and hey, don't put anything above the Lord. Don't use his name in vain. If we do all these things, then you'll be in great shape. But the question is, what is the purpose of the law? Well, Paul says there, he says, it is to what? Bring an awareness. But what does Jesus mean in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says this? He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, because I've not come to abolish them, but to what? What does he say there? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the question is, what does Jesus mean? Well, a lot of people would think, okay, what Jesus means that when he came to um, fulfill the law, that, that it is abolished, that the law is no longer useful and it no longer has a part. Um, there's other people who would say, well, no, 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 no. Jesus came to fulfill the law, but the law is not abolished and it's never going away. A matter of fact, because Jesus died, we should do whatever we can to uphold the law. So a lot of people would say, well, because Jesus died, we should put our faith in Jesus, but also we should try to continue the works of the law. That was the Galatian. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works. We're, we're not going to continue to do things that make it Jesus plus the law. He goes, that's not how it works. So it's not, I put my faith in Jesus and then I try to live by the moral code. So the question is, then what is it? He says, look, Jesus is going to what? Fulfill the law, but he's not going to abolish it. What did Paul say? What was the purpose of the law? He says it brings about the knowledge of sin. He spells this out more candidly to his buddy Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. He says this. Now we know that the law is good. 
if, big if, underline or circle if, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What is Paul saying? Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, the reason that the law is there is to reveal the very fact that you are a sinner. The reason God on Sinai gave Moses 10 commandments, etched in stone, broken before he came down the mountain, had to go back and have them etched in stone again, was to help Moses that in his anger, he falls short of the glory of God. Then in all of Israel's disputes and all of their challenges, time and time and time again, they would fall short of the glory of God. And when Israel fell short of the glory of God, did they continue to sin so the righteousness of God is promoted? No. In their sinning, what they do is they come to an awareness that they would never uphold the law. And in the law, they fell short. But there was one who did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, meaning he kept the law perfectly. He never broke God's law in any way. He never put anyone above God. He never um, disobeyed his parents. He never coveted. He never thought, said, or did anything to break God's law. His name was Jesus. And because Jesus met the legal demands, Colossians 2, 14, we don't have to. Because in our unrighteousness, we fall short of the glory of God. But because Christ, who is rich in mercy, lavished upon us his great love. Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He upheld the law, even when we couldn't. Which means if he upheld the law on our behalf and we trust him, would it be wise of us to continue to go through our lives sinning so that we could declare the righteousness of God? No. How do we declare the righteousness of God? In holiness, being set apart clothed in righteousness. That's how we display the glory of God. Wouldn't it be a, a crazy theme, pretty unorthodox to believe that we display the glory of God in our rebellious sinfulness? That's not displaying the glory of God. Glory of God is dispelled throughout the earth when men and women who were wicked met Jesus. Their lives were changed. And for the glory of God and the good of others, they continue to give themselves away in preference to others, denying themselves, taking up the cross and following Jesus to the glory of God, to the ends of the earth. That's what the church is. And that's what we should be. And if it's anything less than that, then we got to ask ourselves, are, are we unorthodox in our thoughts? So there's a lot to think about. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And God, I thank you, Lord, for the many things it causes us to contemplate. Lord, I pray that if, if anything that we would see today, it would be the wickedness of men, that our throats are an open grave, our tongues deceive, our feet are swift to shed blood, our paths bring about ruin and misery and death, but that it doesn't have to be that way because your son Jesus fulfilled and upheld all the law 
that even though we are ungodly sinners, even though we are unholy and profane, even though we are immoral, even though we practice lies and perjury and crazy disputes, even though we don't live according to sound doctrine, Lord, your son Jesus met the mark for us. He, he met the legal demands. He was crucified in our place. And because of that, we can have eternal life. And because of that, we do not have to die apart from you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would know that the only way we come to know you is if you pursue us. And I pray that you would call many of us towards you, that we would leave our lives behind and we would follow you in devotion, in faithfulness, in holiness, making much of you in a world that is dark. God, would you help us to be a city on the hill? Lord, would you help us to not live our lives as if they're put under a lamp. Well, Lord, would you help us to live loud in a culture that is already incredibly loud? And may everything we do be for the glory of God and for the good of others. We ask this in your name and the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.